the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mobius Strip found at center of social media engines, proving that Twitter and Facebook flame wars literally have no depth. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa, Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a two-part interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller discussing their new short story collection, A Leiden Universe Constellation, Volume 4 this time. The Constellation volumes are collections that bring together all the short fiction Sharon and Steve have written set in the Leiden universe. Now the fourth one is out, and Sharon and Steve will tell us all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. First, here's the news. The July new hardcover and trade paperbacks are now at booksellers everywhere. First out is River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa. Through the Raging Plague. At Tom Smith's previous gig, he was the global managing director for security at an international bank. Then the zombies came. And New York burned. His plan to save the city long enough to find a cure for the zombie virus didn't work out as planned. But Tom and a few trusted allies are able to escape. Now they seek refuge in the bank's prepared evacuation retreat in the Cumberland Valley of Tennessee. Between them and that relative safety are hundreds of miles of clogged roads, burned-out towns, and howling mobs of infected. But Tom Smith has a spark of an idea even for that. And as always, he's got the beginnings of a plan. Also out in July is Mark of Cain by Charles E. Gannon. Blaze a trail through dangerous worlds. Cain Riordan has finally received the message he's been waiting for. A summons to visit the alien Dornani, who still have his mortally wounded love, Elena Corcoran, in their advanced medical facilities. But the Dornani are in chaos and have lost track of Elena's surgical cryocell. Now Riordan must blaze a trail through dying and dangerous worlds to find her. Finally, now out at Booksellers, is debut novel Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy. War will come, will Earth be ready? Mong is used to being hunted. As the last dream warrior, a member of a Burmese military unit whose brains are more machines than gray matter, everyone wants him dead, punished for the multiple atrocities his unit committed during war. But when an alien race makes its presence known on Earth and threatens to annihilate mankind, it gives Mong a chance for redemption. Tiger Burning by T.C. McCarthy, Mark of Cain by Charles E. Gannon, and River of Night by John Ringo and Mike Massa are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, authors of A Leiden Universe Constellation, Volume 4. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Want to welcome Sharon Lee and Steve Miller back to the podcast. Hello. Hi there. Hi, Tony. 
So, Maine-based writers Sharon Lee and Steve Miller teamed up in the late 1980s to bring the world the story of Kinzel, an inept wizard with a love of cats, a thirst for justice, and a staff of true power. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Since then, the husband and wife team have uh, written dozens of short stories and 20-plus novels, mostly set in the star-spanning Leon Universe novel uh, series. Before settling down to the serene and stable life of science fiction and fantasy writers, Steve was a traveling poet, a rock band reviewer, reporter, and editor of some community newspapers. Sharon has been an advertising copywriter, copy editor on Nightside News at a small city newspaper, reporter, photographer, and book reviewer. Both credit their newspaper experiences with teaching them the finer points of collaboration. Sharon and Steve passionately believe that reading fiction ought to be fun, that stories are entertainment. Hey, I do too. Steve and Sharon maintain a web presence. You can find all the stuff you need about the Leaden Universe and more at Corval, K-O-R-V-A-L.com. So uh, out now is, um, is a new collection. We've been collecting all of this short stories and shorter work that is in the Leaden Universe in the books called the Leaden Universe, A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 1, 2, 3, and now at Booksellers is Volume 4. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that uh, he's finally, I just felt so happy for him because he has spent three years being tricked over by these these idiots. And finally, he gets to show that he is a pilot. You know, he's a third-class pilot. He can do it. So, um, it, anyway, I thought it was a great story. Um, what about the Christmas story? It's a holiday story, a uh, black party. <laughs> um, because we had a book coming out. Um, this was this was a Bing Com story. And um, yeah. because the book was coming out, the book was coming out in January, you asked us for a seasonal story. And unfortunately, Leadens, well, Leadens don't celebrate Christmas um, or, or Thanksgiving. Um, and we were pretty sure you didn't want a festival story. Um, so it took some it took some real thought to to come up with with a story that was a quote unquote seasonal story that hit all the seasonal hallmark buttons, but was still a Leiden story. Mm. Um, but but we I think we did well. Um, it is, yeah, it it's got challenge. cookies to start with. It's got cookies. Yes, absolutely. <coughs> you can't have a Christmas story without cookies. Um, <laughs> So, and it's about a, a guy who shows up on siblings with a bunch of kids. Um, and he's been um, relocated from not only from from Liad, but from Liad's Lowport. So he is, quote unquote, not the best people. Um, and our challenge was to, one, figure, figure out who he was and why he had these kids, um, which he wasn't telling us because why should he? Um, and also to have him be enough of a, a person to understand about neighbors and how people need their neighbors in order to exist, that we're not, we're, we all may be strong, but we're not as strong as the neighborhood if we all, if we all stand together. And that's, it's basically that, that kind of a story. It's a, it's a wonderful life, and we're all yeah. here together. Well, it starts with, I mean, our first viewpoint is with, uh, is it Gaina who runs a, a bakery, right? 
and she's trying something new. A new recipe. And um, she's not sure that it's turned out too well. And she um, asks one of the neighborhood guys who's coming in early to go to, go to an interview um, across town to taste the cookies. And while she's talking to him, a kid comes in. And she realizes it's one of the, the new kids from down the block who's been relocated. And she comes in. It's cold. Um, she's, wearing, she's not wearing a hat or coat. And she's not talking very intelligibly, and she gives she gives the little girl a cookie to keep her inside until her people find her. And the guy who has come in before goes, oh, it's one of them, one of the newbies. We don't need them here. And so we, we end up with um, some of the elements of, um, of uh, Christmassy desperation, actually, that um, a lot of Christmas stories have. And um, that's it, that grows out of the people who who don't quite fit in, and um, the child eats eats the cookie. But then the next thing, the the next person who comes in, she right, she eats half the cookie. Okay, um, and and she would be considered. She she shows. Um, there's a phrase for it. I'm not going to be able to come. She displays as uh, somebody with some problems, and. Um, when somebody does come in looking for her, it is some it is a um, an older person uh, who's not really old old by any means according to um, what's it Gaina, mm-hmm. and um, he is also asked to comment on the cookie, the new thing, and, and he, the little the little girl hands hands him her half of her uneaten half of the cookie and says, "Try this." Which is what Gaina told her. Told her, and and tell me what you think. And he tastes it. He gives her her coat and says, "Put your coat on." And you worried your sister, um, but he tastes the cookie. <clears throat> and he says to the to the baker, "It it needs." No, I don't have I don't have to tear in words, but I will demonstrate, because it turns out that he's a baker, um, and he knows about cookies. So they they start a a neighborly exchange. He he sends her what the he sends her is his interpretation of what the cookie ought to have been, um, and she learns from him, and he learns from her, and he starts they start to meet the neighbors. They work in her bakery, they supply some of the things that that she sells, um, and they work themselves into the neighborhood. They become neighbors, except for a few holdouts. And the, um, the 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 follow the follow on there and the subtext that we haven't mentioned before is that they're leaving Liad in a great big hurry. Uh, oh, because of that bombing. Was because of the bombing that we we mentioned earlier. It was because of the strike on Liad and the aftermath in um, Lowport where things got really out of hand and. Uh, they being of low port and things being out of hand, uh, there was fighting. There was actual fighting between people from low port and, um, let us say, uh, rank and file liadens from from that that area uh, against some some of the forces that were trying to. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, the the forces that were. Um, uh, actually, being the problem, and um, 
as a result, these people had to move in a hurry, get out in a hurry, and one of their members uh, has become lost in the fighting. Yeah, and that it. Yeah. So our baker, our baker is Don Air, who will get to know in a subsequent story well and it's his it's his mate right or is his his girl it yeah they're they couldn't marry but they're practically the same thing as being married yeah and she's missing and he's in a melancholy state because of that right so we have uh, a melancholy baker, and he's not just any baker, as we'll find out. Um, he, he, when he says it needs something, he's right. <laughs> and the little girl also has a place in the story because she is a way that Leaden and Sherbleek cultures sort of meld. That's, that's true. She's a, she's, a, she's a focal point. Um, one of the... the the holdout neighborhood who doesn't want newbies coming in and, and disrupting things. Um, at one point, says says to her, says to a room full of people, she can't even talk. And and the little girl looks looks at him and says, yes, I can talk. Um, and there was just no really need to talk before this. Um, so the, it's it's a story of revelations. Yeah. Um, and a story. Well, it's very touching. Um, tell us some more about the the backstory of Don Air and, and Serana Benoit, um, which we find out lots more about in Degrees of Separation. Um, who is he? How does he end up on Lutetia at this, you know, at the cooking school and everything like that? Well, well, one one of the things that we've tried to uh, indicate uh, across the uh, entire backstory of the Liadin experience is that while Liad has all these rules and uh, regulations and balances and rules of popular of um, of uh, proper conduct, uh, not everybody follows them well, and some of the people. Uh, take great ad- take great advantage. In Donaire's case, his his delm is um, yeah. Sharon's across the aisle saying bats. You- yeah, Don- Donaire's um, delm is addicted to gambling. Um, and he's is it basically Surratt? His- Surratt. Surratt. Clan Surratt. And he's basically brought his brought his clan to the to the edge of ruin. With his with his habits, um, and he's that is presented the uncle of Don Air. Uncle Donnie, yeah, Don Air's uncle. Um, he is presented with um, his yeah. The Dome is presented with his sister's child, Don Air, who he does not want. He doesn't doesn't want his sister's child. He doesn't want another child in the clan, and basically ignores him. Um, and this, he's raised by the servants. And raised in the kitchen, and he learns how to bake from the baker in the kitchen. He learns how to make bread um, until, oh, I guess he's about 14, and his cousin, the Nadelm, the Delm's son, comes home and, in an honorable way, talks to the boy to try to figure out what place he has in the clan and how the clan can utilize him, how, how the clan can serve him. 
and goes to talk to his father about this, and his father goes nuts and says, I don't want him here. He's going he's to try to take us over, get rid of him. And the down, the knockdown goes, well, I, what should I do? And sends him away to school. And Donnie is allowed to pick his school. And he says, I want to go to a cooking school. As a matter of fact, I want to go to the school that the cook and the, the, the baker in our kitchens talks about like it's the high church. I, I want to go to the cooking school on Lutetia. And they say to him, but you'll have to learn this new language because all of the all of the classes are taught in this language. He's like, it's okay. I'm, I'm good with languages. My teacher says and my tutor says so. So he winds up getting sent to this cooking school where he remains for 10 years. And excels. And it, Yes, excels and becomes a teacher and is, is ready to move off onto his own and, and collect a small inheritance from his mother and move to an outworld and open up a bakery. And his dumb calls him home. And in the Leiden universe, when your dumb calls you home, you cannot say no. Um, either, or either, only often, a great peril. Often, yeah, often when you should say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he is called home. <clears throat> And he is he is called he, he is called home and um pressed into duty for the Delm which is uh not a good duty and uh which which is uh in in fact which is how he meets the children. But luckily before he he leaves Lutetia, he um makes the acquaintance of the captain of the guard of the city watch. And they become friends, and then they become lovers. And then she gets into a spot of trouble, which means she needs to leave the city guard just as he's called home by his delm. So they travel together. And she is a much more suspicious person than um, Donier is, and also more able to see people's um, twisty, twisty inclinations. So she, yeah, she she's goes with him as his quote. Well, she's a cop. Yes, she's seen it all. Yeah. Um, she she goes with him as his quote unquote bodyguard, um, and so they are a, a set which which amuses people or horrifies people depending on which which people they are. And she basically saves his butt on uh, Letitia from oh, yeah. from some political trouble he gets. So what? Well, uh, Lutetia, a... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Lutetia is another one of the worlds where there's the the official the official line of what's happening and the uh, real line of what's happening, and you can find this in a, in a country club. You can find it in many small towns. You can find it in big cities, where everybody knows who's really in charge, and. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes three or four people think they're the one who's really in charge, and and thus thus you arrive at uh, at uh, conflicts. You can see the same thing happen at science fiction conventions, but we won't go there. And uh, the 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 net result being that uh, he does get, you know, he does have his butt saved, and at the same time, when she arrives on Liad. Uh, which she had, ends up on because of him, she is not 
as sure of the ground rules anymore. She, she's living in a whole new different and whole different kind of a system for her, and so things become very complex there. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, all right, so um, things have gone downhill for Clan Surratt by the time he gets back, um, and 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 the misjudgment by his uncle is even. I mean. This is a hugely educated, um, really good cook who could like maybe save their save them, <laughs> but instead, what he basically trades him away as a indentured servant. Yeah, he loses loses him in a in a card game. Um, basically, um, he runs up he runs up a lot of debt to this not very nice um, person, and says, "Well, in order to pay my debt, I will give you the services of this." kid that I've just remembered belongs to the clan and he will serve you until he has um, in your estimation given you enough service to, to balance the debt um, his dome is not very bright because even as as one of the other characters said he could have opened a restaurant he could have cleaned up this is incre- a chef from Lutetia he, he had no idea what is wrong with him um, but he, his film simply has discounted this this person um, from the start, and there is no value. There is no value there. Yeah. Some issues with his his sister over all this that he's working out on Don Air. It seems like. So, what about and Serana um, is incredibly loyal. Goes with him to the servanthood. Um, how does where do the kids come in? The the Lowport children. Uh, the, the children, the man that Donier is um, supposedly owned by um, has acquired a piece of land in Lowport and he wants it cleared of vermin. So he sends Donier um, and Serena, because where Donier goes, Serena goes, down to Lowport to clear this, this plot of land of vermin. And it turns out that what the vermin are, are like six street kids who are sheltering in the remains of the building on this lot. Um, and they decide they can't just leave leave these children on the street. <clears throat> and they can't, they have to clear the lot. Um, and it's not a great place anyway, living in an abandoned building, even though they've done some really good stuff with fortifications and tunnels and things. So they move them to... A, a less what turns out to be a less secure um, situation in a department in an apartment house, um, but then they can't leave them there either. So Donier and Serena split up. Serena stays with the kids, and Donier has to go back to this man's house to serve him. Um, that that turns out to not be a great idea. They're they're better together than they are apart. Yeah, they're a good unit. And so, and these are, this is essentially a prequel to Block Party, and we find out who these, these folks in Block Party, how these kids got to Sherbleek and all that, and what, who they are. They are, they're clanless, right? Is that? They, they're clan, they're street kids. That's a bad thing to be on Leaden. It is a really bad thing to be. Um, Donier asks his friend, the cook in the house where he's serving, um, what he should do about these children in Lowport, and his friend says to him, "I, you know, send it never comes to me. Children don't live long in Lowport." 
And that's mm-hmm. his answer. So that is degrees of separation. And there's a couple of more stories in here um, that uh, excerpts from two lives, which is an interesting story that we had in, uh, I think that was the Star Destroyer story. That's a very early uh, Leiden Universe timeline story, right? Is Am I right in that? Uh, that that came about actually because we mentioned a song in Agent of, uh, no, in um, Carpe Diem. There is a song mentioned, and Miri sings it, and uh, it's, okay, if you didn't hear that from Sharon in the background, it was the Ballad of the Rosa Ring, and Miri sings it, and it's kind of a sad song, and it was a story that we've been meaning to tell for a long, long time, and given the option to uh, deal with major uh battleships and that kind of thing which we don't show a, a whole lot in the Leiden universe in general so getting given a chance to deal with a major battleship and the problems thereof and and etc uh it was exactly pardon me exactly the situation that the Rosa Ring song came from and so we were able to uh put together a, a the background from the Rosa Ring song and explain uh, what happened. And it turns not to be a... Uh, sometimes tragedies happen in, in the Lee Aiden universe. Not, every, not everything has the happy ending. And that was one of the stories that we already knew didn't have a happy ending. And so um, that was where that story essentially came from and why it, why it was the story that it was, because it was predicted back in 1988 <laughs> or ni- yeah i guess 19 uh, 1988 when this the second book came out well tell us about just to uh, don't tell us the the what it's what happens of course although uh, but the tell us about these two sort of star-crossed lovers that are the main characters and what their talents are uh very capable people and they're both ambitious they are going to be at the top of whatever it is they do and they're in a situation they are they are not liating they come from the uh, the parent side of um of of events and uh the play, the society they're coming from has just recently uh sort of lost the war and they means they lost a lot of people and that puts both the uh the uh, protagonist, well, both of them are essentially protagonists, uh, puts them in a spot where they're both in a a, a chance to move up quickly. One in the uh, train of, a, of an admiral uh, who is uh, looking for somebody to replace him, and uh, the other in a research situation for top-end research where they're going after information from the original universe, dangerous information, and uh, this person has um, uh, come across a special angle for for that. And um, because the spaceship, the, the uh, battleship, uh, has so much extra room on it, since right now nobody's running battleships, uh, there, nobody is running battleships right now, and the, they, this battleship is used to transport a research expedition, which the woman is in charge of, and it 
again, it kind of goes from there. She's she's overreaching at the same time that he's overreaching. They're just overreaching in in uh, different situations, and uh, the battleship comes back after having left them due to their research, and she has uh, pushed the research to very dangerous uh, to very dangerous systems, and uh, it's. The necessity of um, protecting the um, the battleship and protecting the expedition uh, come to a head because then you can't do both, and uh, that that was how they became star-crossed. They became star-crossed because they were both super ambitious and both recognized the other as somebody who was super ambitious and could work with them. Mm. And she's a biologist, right? That's she is the, yeah. their, their research um, project is ter- well, quote unquote, terraforming the planet, and she's yeah. she has she thinks figured out a way to accelerate this amazingly, which and is by using um, technology that that was um, quote unquote forbidden technology from the previous, uh, uh, which is not a good idea in stories sometimes, <laughs> so. in, uh, or in real life. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and and finally, uh, so you you explain the Rosaring uh, li- uh, lyric, um, but that story. Finally, we have a revolutionist. Um, tell us a little bit about that with Gerald and his. Um, he's on a space station, and then he's outside floating around, right? Something like that. Gerald is a um, a child on a, in a. Um, uh, in a, uh, a star station that has uh, been going through some hard times, some some rough times, and there's not a lot of children on the on the uh, station, and, and some of them uh, are being sort of kept because of the understanding that if you take blood from young people and give it to old people, uh, they can take extra benefit from that blood. Uh, it's it's a, a thing that's being studied right now as to whether or not it's true in in our in our real life. So it was a topic that was easy to to work with, and so it turns out Gerald's mother and uh, his his line goes back to somebody very famous in the uh, uh, Lee Aiden, uh series, and that that is his real name is his full name is is Gerald Jethry. And he's named after perhaps his great 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 grandfather Jethry, and Jethry, of course, is one of the uh, characters in Trade Secrets and Balance of Trade and 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 that. So he's named after that particular person, uh, but there's not a lot of things actually for the kids to do. There's a, it's sort of a uh, the the station part of the time is a lot like. Uh, welfare neighborhood in that there's people sitting sitting around waiting for something to happen, waiting for something to do, and sometimes you can go get yourself in trouble. You can go, uh, you, you can, uh, or you can just go sit and wait. And they're trying to hold on to um, they, that it would be the uh, upper decks are trying to hold on to, to Gerald as somebody who is of the line of the, of the good blood. And um, Gerald, of course, has a little bit more uh, going for him in that he wants to study things, he wants to do some things, and so he becomes involved with uh, 
uh, a person whose parents have more uh, position than than sense, and they're they're putting him in charge of things from time to time, uh, where maybe he oughtn't be in charge. Uh, the the upshot of all of this is that uh, in, in a in a spot where the uh, uh, essentially Gerald becomes the security for the entire station. Gerald uh, and this this other I would call him boy um, become the security for the entire station, and that uh, position the the uh, drives the one the one boy uh, to to the edge and saying, "Okay, I'm in charge now." You would, and uh, he's going to have a revolution and take over everything. And so Gerald, who has nothing else to do and nobody else he really knows, uh, says, "Okay, this, this is the revolution. This is the revolution. Let's go." And uh, as the only responding person to the security call, uh, and with spaceships uh, approaching the station, uh, he's put into one of the uh, high-end. Uh, defensive suits and goes outside to defend the station. So that's what happens to Gerald. He's kind of um, um, semi-wrong person, semi-right person, in the semi-right time, semi-wrong time. And he's got to... Yes. In in fact, he's he's got to make a choice. And uh, his um, unindicted co-conspirator um, also makes a choice, um, which is kind of um, uh, not necessary. I, I, I've had people tell me that they didn't see that coming, so I guess that I guess that it worked. <laughs> well, this is the. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of these uh, stories are about choices characters make. Um, that there's a lot of action and, and things going on, but it comes down to. Um, sacrifice and and jeopardy and and things that are a, an interior a choice that they make that that moves them in a in a good or a bad direction usually it's good um so what uh what which i guess is um you know uh, considering that malati rules the Leon universe is is something that you find easy to use as writers right <laughs> i would say Yeah, what um, what keeps you at it? Why do you keep uh, coming back to um, this wonderful world you've created? I mean, there's some obvious answers, but tell them to us anyway. <laughs> well, well, I've been living here for thirty years, thirty-five years now, um, and it's it's home. Um, uh, it, it it is. We we hear from people who want to know, you know, what would Jesus do, and that kind of a question. Well, when we're walking around, we do say to each other sometimes, when we see something happen, what would Falcon do, or what would Miri do, or gee, what would Theo do? Oh, no, don't go there. <laughs> but, <laughs> pardon, um, there's a um, whole lot of exploration, as you just were talking about, of what choices are available to people, and uh, sometimes, as in 
as a, as in the story of the the Kandra who comes up with the the street Kandra who comes up with the you guys are missing the problem. I know what the problem is. The problem is this ought to be personal. Uh, that's choices, yes, and it's uh, a lot of what we what we end up dealing with. So we we. Uh, we filter the whole world that we live in now through what we've written about and what questions people have asked us about our characters. And and we still get people saying, oh, but what about this? What about that? When are you going to get to this person or that person? What are you working on at the moment? What we are working on at the moment? We are working on a novel, which is due in September. Um, a Leiden novel. It doesn't have a, a title yet. Um, we are working on a novel which may or may not get done exactly in December, which is a um, uh, a Jeffrey novel, and uh, actually there should be two books in that uh, in that series in that system, and it looks like a duology. And uh, I'm currently about two thirds of the way. I'm hoping through a, a story in which somebody is. Um, Lost in a snowstorm on shore bleak. That's that's three things. Yeah. Um, plus, we we owe we owe you guys a story in support of um, accepting the land. That's so right. That's five. That's going to be November fifteenth story. So. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, I think the one that I'm working on is uh, won't be that one. We have to. I'd have to check the dates very carefully, uh, not in terms of the dates of getting it written, but rather the dates within the story to to see whether it would be appropriate to the. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got a, to that I've, occasion. I think we need to do in, in Yeah. yeah. Well, um, anything else we'd like to say about uh, Leon Universe Constellation Volume Four? Um, it's it's a great collection of previously published stories, and you all should buy it. It's got a very nice cover on the on Sam, it. Sam like. Kennedy's cover is terrific. And uh, that does, in fact, show Gerald Jethry uh, in in his spot where he's trying to defend the uh, the Star Station against a few outside uh, a few outsiders. Yeah, it's a cool cover. Kennedy cover and Leiden Universe Constellation Volume Five is in nascent, <laughs> in nascent form. It's rolling it, right along. It, there are yeah, there are story there are stories moving in that direction. <laughs> um, we don't we we know it's coming close when we can look down and say there's at least eighty thousand words. Yeah. Um, and right now, no, we're nowhere near the 80,000-word uh, count. But when, once we get to 80,000 words, what we end up doing generally is we say to Tony, it might be getting close, and uh, that, that is um, Tony Weisskopf. And then at yes. that point, um, we, we get some uh, – we, we, we start looking forward to what else fits, what other – is there anything else that we haven't thought of that should go in and, and like that. We're not at that point yet. Well, where we are now is a Leiden Constellation Volume 4, and it is at booksellers everywhere. Um, Sharon and Steve, thank you very much for uh, talking with us about that collection. Okay, thank you, Tony. You're welcome. Thanks for calling.
That was part two of a two-part interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, authors of A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 4. Part two is available last time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 31 Dishonored Jagdish walked up to the gates of Coldstream Prison, wincing as the stitches in his chest pulled with each step. He passed the spot where he'd stood in front of a wall of terrified flesh and sent half a dozen prisoners to the great nothing and the place where the false protector Loam had beaten him into the dust. It had rained the next night, so the red stains had been washed away. Pakpa had warned him to stay in bed. She'd said he shouldn't be up yet. She said he needed his rest but he knew she was only hoping he'd stay in bed until the crisis had passed, and hopefully Jagdish would be forgotten in the turmoil. Going out now would only draw attention, and the high-status warriors would need someone to blame for this failure. He'd not been summoned, so why go? They'd only just found out Pakpa was with child. If Jagdish was to be executed for his failures, then his wife would be sent back to her old caste, and his son, for Jagdish was certain it was a boy, wouldn't get to be a warrior. It was best to stay, to keep his head down, to let this controversy blow over. Again, he'd been wounded doing his duty, and wasn't that enough? Pakba was a good woman but she'd been raised among the worker caste, so she couldn't understand that a warrior had no choice. Guards were stationed along the walls, and they weren't his men. They'd seen him coming a long ways off, and had warned the others. They met him behind crossed spears. I am Rizalda Jagdish. The reply was stony. We know who you are. But the spears parted, and they let Jagdish through anyway. It struck him as odd that the great gates were open. But why wouldn't they be? There were very few prisoners left to watch, and none of them would be out of their cells. Many had been slaughtered that night, and more had escaped. 
Some had been recaptured and returned, but many more had just been executed when they'd been discovered by warriors eager to avenge the insult against their house. Jagdish entered the yard and looked around. Bodies were stacked in piles, awaiting cremation. Prisoners who had survived had been questioned, and the troublesome had been hung. Their corpses dangled from ropes, swaying in the breeze. Castless were still gathering body parts to throw on the piles. Buzzards circled overhead, hopeful the humans would leave soon. He was surprised to see that an old warrior, wearing the insignia of Afontho, a commander of 500, was present. Someone of such high status wouldn't normally be inspecting a prison. He was accompanied by a masked inquisitor. The two of them were studying a nearly headless body that had been dragged across the yard and hung on a pole. A tattered cloak snapped in the wind. All that was really left of the man's head was the lower jaw and some jagged gobs of meat, but Jagdish recognized the intricate armor of the man he'd fought. A soldier whispered in the Fontho's ear, and the old man turned to regard Jagdish. His wrinkled face bore the scars of blade and burns, and this one looked to have earned his status through achievement rather than birth. It hurt to bow, but Jagdish did, as contrite and low as his stitches and bruises would allow. Get up, the senior officer approached. The Inquisitor was like his shadow. You're in command here. I was. I read your report. Jagdish had been questioned while in his hospital bed. My testimony was as true and complete as possible. Then why are you here? To help? To help? The Fontho laughed, like that was the funniest thing he'd heard in a long time. The Inquisitor didn't make a sound. To help? Jagdish swallowed hard. Yes, sir. Every man under your command on the night watch died. Your responsibility was to keep these prisoners secure, and now most of them are rampaging across the countryside. Valuable hostages escaped, and rather than our collecting ransoms or swapping them for our own captured brothers, they're running for the borders. Worst of all, the most infamous criminal in Locke has escaped. Our Thakur has been insulted, and now he's crawling up my ass to bring back the Blackheart's head. Is there any possible way in which you did not fail, Rizalda? He pointed at the nearly headless corpse. I fought that one. The Fontho nodded. I see. And how many of your men were on duty here that night? Eighteen, sir. And you consider eighteen to one a fair trade? Bad luck and bad at math. No wonder no other command wanted you. That stung. Jagdish was a proud man, and he knew he was a good officer. It wasn't his fault that he kept ending up fighting supernatural menaces. He was a wizard, Jagdish stated. The other protector turned into a great black bird and flew away. The Fontho's hard eyes narrowed dangerously. I read that in your report. I was hoping that was just because the surgeons had given you some poppy to help you sleep. What you didn't see is that those protectors swept through this entire place, slitting throats, and your men were so ill-prepared and poorly trained that hardly any of them even managed to fight back. Pathetic. It was one thing to be insulted himself, 
but to have his men questioned was intolerable. They were good warriors. They did their duty. But how could they be prepared to fight against magic? There's some truth to that, Rizalda. The Fontho softened just a bit. It's bad enough that once great protectors have turned to treachery, but witchcraft as well. These are dark times. I don't believe they were protectors at all. I have fought a real protector. These fought with trickery, not with real skill. The Inquisitor spoke for the first time. Twice now you've been shamed by protectors, yet you still defend them. Curious. It was difficult to keep his emotions under control. This wizard didn't fight like a protector. And I saw no sign of Ashok Vidal. Are you suggesting he's innocent? The Inquisitor's question was flat and emotionless. He certainly isn't here. That was a trap. No matter how hot-headed a warrior might be, only a stupid one would verbally spar with an Inquisitor. I only speak the truth. I don't interpret it. Talking back to that mask was asking for trouble, so Jagdish focused on the Fontho, who at least seems like an honorable member of their caste. Allow me to join the hunt for Ashok. I have fought him. Many times from what I've been told. You're dumb, but brave, I'll give you that. However, I believe when it comes to the fallen, your reason has been compromised. I have an entire legion searching for him already. Then let me hunt down the wizards, who I know are responsible for this. I'm afraid you don't get it, Rizalda. They are one and the same. Ashok and his protector brethren also destroyed the garrison at Sutpo Bridge. Nearly an entire Palton, a worker's village, and a member of the first caste were killed. Men, women, and children, hell, even horses and dogs, so many bodies hacked up and tossed into the river that they're still washing up in villages downstream. It wasn't a battle. It was savagery. It was a message. A declaration of war against order and decency and it was delivered by the Black Heart himself. Jagdish couldn't believe it. That doesn't sound like the work of Ashok. Five years ago, I watched the Black Heart almost single-handedly cut his way through a Macau legion. And afterwards, I watched him carry out a judgment malicious enough to end a house war. Don't tell me what you think he's capable of, because I've seen it with my own eyes. He is the ultimate killer. Yes, but he's not without honor. The Fontho gritted his teeth. Enough. You've survived the two most shameful, humiliating moments in our recent history. You allowed your Thakur to die, and now her murderer to escape. You're either cursed with ill fortune or totally incompetent. I don't want your help, Rizalda. No one does. Jagdish's knees had gone weak. My assignment, then. I'll have papers drawn up discharging your duties. Maybe someday someone more merciful than I will see fit to obligate you to some assignment again. Until then, there's nothing for you in House Vidal. The Fontho spit on the ground at Jagdish's feet and then walked away. He was unneeded. That was the worst thing that could happen to a warrior. No unit would have him. There would be no assignments, no opportunities, 
not even a stipend to live off of. How could he support his wife, his son? He would have to turn to mercenary work, selling his sword to guard merchants' goods or some other low-status behavior just to eat. The Inquisitor had remained there, studying him through the narrow eye-holes of his unnerving mask. Other than luck or incompetence, there is a third possibility for your presence at these unfortunate events. And what would that be? Treachery. A suspicious man might think that you were in league with these rebellious protectors. Was that meant as a threat? I am no traitor, Jagdish snarled. The mask moved up and down in the semblance of a nod. Of course, I was only trying to comfort you, for it's surely better to be thought of as stupid than a criminal. At least, the stupid don't go beneath the hot knives. There will be rumors, and some will surely say such unpleasant things about you. But if I thought you were in league with the Black Heart, then we would be having this conversation in a very different setting. How dare he? But Jagdish kept his emotions in check. I will demonstrate my loyalty. Of course you will, the Inquisitor said in the most patronizing manner. Farewell, Rizalda. I will be staying here until the Black Heart is found. Should you remember anything else of note, you may ask for me at the castle. I am Senior Inquisitor Taraba. The Inquisitor left him standing there with Lome's battered corpse dangling over the courtyard, mocking him. He was tempted to draw his sword and hack the ropes to drop the body into a rotting heap into the dirt. But that would only annoy the Fontho further. I will prove my loyalty, Jagdish shouted to no one in particular. Loam could no longer hear him, and no lawful man believed in ghosts. But Jagdish whispered to him anyway. Tell your wretched brothers I am coming for them, and that Jagdish the warrior will kill them all. Jagdish's hands were shaking as he stormed back toward the gates. This couldn't be. He was a soldier of great House Vidal. He'd fought and bled for his brothers, and all of those accomplishments were being torn away. He ignored the sneers of the men at the gates and began walking back toward the city. His heart was heavy. He had no idea how he was going to explain this to his wife. She'd thought that she'd been marrying up. More warriors were approaching up the road to Coldstream. They were of his Paltan, who had been lucky enough to have been on the day watch. They appeared haggard and exhausted, covered in dried mud and scratches. Of course, they'd probably been chasing escapees the whole time, and it looked like they'd had a bit of luck. They were leading several men in chains. One of the warriors saw him and exclaimed, Rizalda Jagdish, you're here! He lifted one hand in greeting. The men visibly cheered up. At least these warriors knew him for what he was. I'm sorry, was all he could say. But they would have none of it. These men didn't want apologies. They paid him respects and seemed overjoyed to see him. Jagdish will know what to do. They understood that it wasn't stupidity or dereliction of duty, 
but just a good soldier's fate that things randomly went bad. Even though they'd not been on duty that night, they'd been chastised too. The entire Paltan had lost face, and low-status prison guards didn't have much to begin with. I'm afraid I'm not going to be your officer anymore, he told them. There was a chorus of groans and complaining, as was expected whenever low-ranking warriors lost a leader they actually had respect for. Still reeling, he heard their words, but his brain was having a difficult time understanding any of them. Then Jagdish noticed who one of the prisoners was. You. The large worker was even dirtier than the soldiers hauling him in. The other prisoners kept their heads down and their eyes averted, but this one stared right back at him with far too much pride, as if they were equals. He folded his thick arms, causing a jingle of chains. My name is Guts. Uppity worker caste scum, a guard said. Chop of the worker caste scum, Guts corrected. Forge Master Smith of Adal City, before my unfortunate legal troubles. You killed the wizard Loam, Jagdish said. Well, I never caught his name before I crushed his head. And you're welcome for that, by the way. In the daylight, Jagdish could see that the prisoner was even more imposing than he'd remembered. He had a chest like a barrel and a big square head. A cursory glance would lead one to think that he was a bit doughy. Surprising, considering he'd been living on meager prison rations. But having seen him hoist up the gate bar, Jagdish knew the man was as strong as an elephant. How about my way of repayment for the favor of saving your life? You have these guys look the other way and give me a ten-minute head start. Jagdish turned to the senior Nayak. What crime sent him to Coldstream? Trafficking in illegal magic? The Inquisition says he's still got a year on a sentence? Okay, how about a five-minute head start then? Jagdish walked over until he was directly in front of the prisoner. Now Gutch was wearing different clothing, far nicer than his blanket with a head hole, but he smelled like he'd spent the night hiding in a pig pen, wallowing in filth. Careful, sir, he's a clever one, the Nayak warned him. Don't let his appearance fool you. We found him hiding in the finest brothel in the city. It was only a day after the breakout, and he already looked like a banker and had a wallet full of notes. The mess didn't happen until he leapt out a window, and we had to chase him through the filthiest, stinking canals in the city. And you slow bastards only caught me because I got stuck trying to wiggle through a sewer grate. Curse these broad shoulders. I know my mother certainly did when I was born. One of the warriors helpfully thumped the prisoner over the head with the butt of a spear. Ouch! Jagdish didn't ask the men where the prisoners' new money had gone, as men of their low status were paid stipends barely sufficient to live on, so they'd more than likely pocketed it. But he had a suspicion about how the prisoner had earned it so quickly. The talisman you took from Loam. You sold it. Gutch snorted. I'm not saying nothing about nobody. I don't give a damn about your criminal friends. That night, when you killed the wizard, you said you could sense magic. Gutch nodded. Yeah, sure. I've always had the gift for that. Like a bloodhound, they used to say. Jagdish stroked his chin thoughtfully. An idea was forming. Like a bloodhound. Stronger the scent, 
the easier the hunt, I imagine. Depends, but basically something like that. So while you were here with Angruvidal, surely you'd recognise its scent? Of course. That sword is the strongest damn thing I've ever... Gutch caught himself. Hang on. I know what you're thinking. No. Oceans, no. All right, boys. Lead me back to my cell. According to the law, Jagdish was still commander of this prison until the Fontho's papers were filed, and that meant that its charges were his to do with as he saw fit. Unchain him. No, really, on that whole head start thing, I was only joking. I'm really not much of a runner. Sir? Are you sure? I'm taking the prisoner Gutch into my custody. Worst case scenario, the prisoner would escape again, but it wasn't like they would demote Jagdish much further than they already had. Or maybe the giant would smash his head like he'd done to the false protector. But better a fast death than a slow, embarrassing one. What did you tend to do? One of his men asked. I will find and kill those who murdered our brothers and restore our name, Jagdish vowed. The warriors cheered. Oh, hell, Gutch muttered. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the conservatorship for multi-billionaire island of sentient pine trees that has been floating around the Atlantic basically doing nothing while its $1 Boston bank account deposit from 1792 keeps multiplying and multiplying. That compound interest is good stuff. Plus, thanks and praise to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, authors of the Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 4. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.